The subject that we are going to talk about today is a subject that I have heard debated in the halls of great yeshivos very vigorously and stridently. It's a subject that I find to be really interesting because, you know, it confounds many yeshiva students. It's hotly contested and debated and discussed in like the yeshiva environment, but I've really never heard it discussed anywhere else. So that's kind of interesting, but I find the the subject itself to be very compelling and it's going to provide a lot of food for thought. Think of it as almost like applied faith. The Hebrew word for this is bitachon, faith or reliance on God. And there's something very unusual and it's discussed by all the commentators on the Torah. We might have mentioned it briefly in the broadcast, but we're going to discuss it at length right now. And that is the subject of Joseph's reliance on God. The parasha begins, it's at the end of two years, the events of last week's parasha, where Joseph had his cellmates, the two disgraced ministers of Pharaoh, and they each have a dream, and he successfully interprets the dreams, and he tells the butler, you are going to be restored to your post. Once again, you are going to be the chamberlain of Pharaoh, and the baker, I have bad news for you, in three days, Pharaoh's birthday, he is going to decapitate you. And then Joseph tells the butler, please, when you are restored to Pharaoh's good graces, don't forget about me. Remember me. Invoke me before Pharaoh and get me out of this place. I've been here for 10 years already. I am innocent of any crime. Help me once you are restored to Pharaoh's confidence. Get me out of here. And the last verse of last week's parsha says that after the butler was restored, he forgot about Joseph completely, and he didn't remember him. And now it's two years later, and Pharaoh himself has two very disturbing dreams, and suddenly the butler's going to say, whoa, I remember, I forgot all about this, but there was this dude, this Hebrew, this young slave named Joseph, who was very adept at interpreting the dreams, maybe he could help you, maybe he could help Pharaoh, and that, of course, begins the story of Joseph's renaissance and transformation into Viceroy of Egypt. But why was there a two-year delay? So the Midrash at the beginning of our parsha, and this is quoted by Rashi at the end of last week's parsha, we discover something stunning. The butler forgot Joseph. Joseph really perhaps could have been saved at the very beginning, so to speak, of the butler's time back with Pharaoh. But because Joseph relied too heavily on the butler and not enough on God, therefore he was punished to have to spend two more years in prison before he was restored, before he was saved and rescued. In fact, the commentators tell us that Pharaoh for two years was having this dream and therefore it could have been the very day that the butler was restored. That's when Pharaoh started his dreams and just every morning he forgot his dreams. And the reason why he forgot his dreams and it wasn't so disturbed as a result of those dreams is only because Joseph had to spend two years in prison. He had to be punished because of his over-reliance on the butler and insufficient reliance on God. This is just an amazing thing. Joseph is in prison. He's in prison for a crime he did not commit. He's been there for 10 years. And you imagine the prison in Egypt 
is not quite like, you know, the prisons that we have here in the West where you have, you know, color TV and ping pong tables and access to the library. I'd imagine it was very, very difficult and painful to be in prison. And Joseph, like anyone, would try to get out of there, get out of the hellhole, the misery of the jail that he was in. And now he sees someone who's about to go right next to Pharaoh and to speak to him every day. So Joseph does what everyone else would do. Joseph tells the butler, please do me a favor. Use your influence or your capacity, your proximity to Pharaoh to help me. And that, as they just tell us, that is why Joseph had to spend two more years in jail. Moreover, the Midrash says, if you look at the verse at the end of last week's parasha, when he makes his pitch to the butler, he says, Zechartani, remember me? When you get to Pharaoh, Hiskartani, invoke me before Pharaoh. And because Joseph said two words to the butler, to try to get the butler to help him, and he relied on the butler to a certain capacity in these two words, as opposed to relying on God, that's why he suffered two years in jail, one year for every word. That's what Rashi tells us. That's what the Midrash tells us at the beginning of our Parsha. Now, to us, this seems to be really excessive and harsh punishment. You know, simple reliance on the butler, on a human, as opposed to sufficient reliance on God that results in two years in the slammer. This is amazingly harsh. And some of the commentators, of course, add the principle that's found in many places in Jewish literature, that the righteous are judged by God with a higher standard. They're judged with the harshness of a hair's breadth. There's very little wiggle room. And because Joseph was such a holy person, such a pious person, such a righteous person, someone who typically would rely exclusively on God, because he relied on the butler and not on God, or not completely on God, he had to serve two more years in prison. An amazing idea that is featured over here, that Joseph had too much reliance on man as opposed to God, and as a result of that, he was punished. Now, the critical question that everyone asks is, wait a minute, we believe that you shouldn't just sit around on your couch waiting for divine salvation. We're supposed to take the opportunities that the Almighty provides us. In fact, if you neglect the opportunities that God sends your way, well, that's that's negligence. There's the old joke about the guy who was stranded on a block of wood in the ocean. He's crying out to God, help me, help me. And then, you know, a ship liner comes and he's like, no, I'm waiting for God's help. And then, you know, uh, a speedboat comes and the Coast Guard comes and he's like, I'm relying on God. And eventually he drowns. And he comes to God and says, wait a minute, why don't you help me? He says, I did. I sent you the ship liner. I sent you the speedboat. I sent you the Coast Guard. And you were just negligent. And that's why you died. They have the other joke about the guy in Brooklyn or Manhattan and he's late to a meeting and he's looking frantically for a parking spot and crying out to God. And then right as he finishes his prayer, a car goes out of its spot right in front of him and he gets a parking spot and says, God, okay, I'm good. You, you could stop now. I, I got it myself. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for the help, but I got it myself. Of course, we believe that the Almighty sends us opportunities and we have to seize those opportunities. 
And here, it seems like, patently obvious to all, Joseph is in prison. Of course, he's wrongly imprisoned. And what do you know? His cellmate used to work for Pharaoh. And his cellmate is about to be restored. What is Joseph supposed to do? What's the right thing for Joseph to do? We would say that it's negligence if he doesn't make a pitch to the butler to have his case invoked before Pharaoh. Maybe he could be saved. Aren't we supposed to take the opportunities that the Almighty provides us? Joseph apparently did the right thing by asking the butler for some help. If he didn't ask, he would be irresponsible. Yet he is punished with two more years in jail. What's going on? Why is Joseph being punished for doing the right thing? I think this is a very important question because in everything we do in life, we have this dilemma. How much should we work, you know, 18 hours a day to achieve our aims? Or should we work less and say, you know what? I did my share and now I'm going to rely on God. Where is that point where we should rely on the opportunities and invest our personal efforts as if, so to speak, God's not part of the picture? And how much should we rely on God? In every predicament that we have in our lives, this is the question. What is the correct attitude for navigating such a situation? Is this a good question? So this is a question I wanted to talk about today. Because we're now in middle Hanukkah. And this Shabbos, Shabbos Parshas Mitates, is the sixth day and night of Hanukkah. We're going to offer six different answers to this question. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like the benefit of this question itself is kind of the rumination of this whole idea. You know, we talk about faith a lot. Believe in God. I'm not an atheist. I'm a theist even though theists don't call themselves theists. I'm a believer! By the way, neither do believers call themselves creationists. These are all names made up by other people. But a lot of people, most people, believe in God to one degree or another. But faith is like a concept. It's an idea. It's an abstract concept. This world couldn't have created itself. Matter doesn't create itself. The world's too sophisticated. Where'd the first cell come from? Who made the Big Bang? Where does matter come from? A lot of questions that we have and say, okay, there must be a creator. And you know what? Maybe even we believe in the divinity of the Torah. But faith, faith in God, faith in Torah, that is one level. And then there's the applied faith. When you start living your life differently because of this reality, that is called applied faith. That's called bitachon. That is reliance on God. The subject today of Joseph relying on the butler too much, insufficiently relying on God, is a subject of applied faith. So let's begin our journey to six answers for the sixth night of Hanukkah, which is this upcoming Friday night. Let us begin. So the first idea I heard from my grandfather, and he says something very interesting. Joseph's behavior was appropriate. Joseph had a cellmate. The cellmate was about to go to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the only person in the world who could have gotten Joseph out 
of this predicament. He's the only one that has the, the power of, you know, to commute a sentence or to, um, what's the other word for that? Not to commute, but to pardon the criminals. And Joseph did the right thing by asking the butler. But the problem is, is that Joseph, again, relative to his righteousness, Joseph shouldn't have relied on the butler. Meaning, when when we do something, we invest our efforts in pursuit of a certain goal. What you do, your behavior, should be different than what you're thinking. Meaning, Joseph acted appropriately by asking, by requesting from the butler some help that was appropriate. But in his head, he should have recognized that whatever help I get from whichever source I get it, ultimately, my salvation comes from God. When you plant in the ground, you put a seed in the ground, you're doing work, right? You're investing. Yeah, I need food. Well, there's going to be hopefully a nice harvest this year. We need food for our family. So let's plant some grain. Let's plant some fruit trees. So we have food. You put the seed in the ground. That is your effort. But ultimately, you recognize that the results, the yield comes from God. We are trained, again, this is advanced faith. This is applied faith. We're trained to recognize that everything that happens in the world is no like independent force called nature. It's all the Almighty. And that's how a person of advanced faith interfaces with the world. Everything that happens is ultimately the will of the Almighty and a gift from God. And therefore, Joseph's behavior was proper. However, in his mind, perhaps he relied too much on the butler for help. And even when the butler would help, you have to recognize this from God. And therefore, when you ask from the butler for some help, the appropriate thing is to recognize that ultimately it's only God who can help you. One of the commentators actually pointed out, if you look at Joseph's request, the precise words that he asked of the butler, he said, maybe you will save me from my misery, from my predicament. The truth is, whatever happens to you, it's ultimately God pulling the strings. The people are just the puppets in the hands of the Almighty. And you know what? If God uses the butler as a messenger, that's great. Joseph should have asked for help, but ultimately he should have recognized that salvation came from God because he didn't do that, at least not sufficiently. He was punished with two years of imprisonment. One idea. A second idea I heard in the name of Rabbi Rozovsky as follows. This is very clever. Joseph interprets the dreams of the butler. And he tells him, in three days, it's going to be Pharaoh's birthday, and he is going to go through the list of his estranged servants, and he's going to see your name, and he is going to restore you to your post. And then Joseph says, when you get there, do me a favor, help me out of here. When does Joseph ask the butler for some help? He asks him right after he interprets the dream. He interprets the dream and says, in three days, you're going to get out of here. And therefore, in three days, please help me, give me a boost, get me out of here as well. What about that day, the following day? 
What about the two days before the last day that the butler is together with Joseph? By Joseph asking the butler, this is a little bit of a subtle point, by Joseph asking the butler to help me when you get out, he is implying that there was no way to get out right now or tomorrow. It's only three days from now when the butler is out. That's the only time that I can leave. Meaning, Joseph should have asked the butler, but he should have asked him right before his release. Asking him earlier implies that there was no way out outside the butler, and therefore he was punished because a person who has true faith in God always believes that no situation is too dire and too helpless. In fact, there's a saying that we say all the time, even if there's a sharp knife on your neck, you're about to be executed, you never give up hope. Because you know what? The Almighty is ultimately in charge of everything and nothing can happen against his will. And therefore, by Joseph failing to recognize this particular idea, failing to recognize that salvation can come even before the butler is released, he was punished. Very interesting idea. Let's go on to answer number three. Joseph, indeed, was appropriate in requesting help from the butler. The butler is sent by God. There's nothing wrong in asking for help. But he asked twice. If you look at his request, he says, remember me, and then he says, invoke me before Pharaoh. For someone like Joseph, someone like that should always be cognizant of the fact that the Almighty is ultimately running the show. That is what is expected of someone like Joseph. And you know what? You have to do your due diligence. You have to put in your effort. You have to try to help yourself as well. Otherwise, it would be negligent. But the minimum that's required is trying to do one bit of effort. Asking once, that will be sufficient for someone of the gargantuan, titanic faith that Joseph had and demonstrated. Someone like that, asking once of the butler for help, is sufficient. He would execute, so to speak, his responsibilities, due diligence. He would not be negligent because he asked after all, and that would be appropriate. When he asked twice, that is an indication of too much reliance. He relied excessively on the butler, and for that, he was punished. Potentially, again, they were were offering answers, but I think these ideas, each one of the ideas shows us at least the whole concept, their notion of people taking faith so seriously that it actually changes how they behave and the choices they make and the reality of the existence of God and the providence of God that he's involved in your life and he's trying to help you and he's aware of your situation and has all the power, that is something that I think is always worthy to think about and to ruminate upon. A fourth potential answer comes from the concept of the golden rule of Jacob. If you study Jacob's life, you see that he is demonstrating in every one of his challenges, he's demonstrating a golden rule of how exactly to navigate this question. You have a problem. You have a danger. You have an obstacle. 
You have something upcoming that's very perilous. What do you do? Jacob always teaches us that what you do is you invest your efforts and then you add prayer. So a couple of weeks ago, we read in Parshas Vayishlach, Jacob is about to encounter his brother Esav, who has very nefarious intentions for their reunion. And Rashi tells us that Jacob does three things. He sends a bribe. He sends a very lavish gift to try to appease his brother. He prepares for war. He has that contingency plan as well. Separates the camp into two. If it comes down to war, let us be as prepared as we possibly can. And finally, he prays. After he does the requisite effort, he prays. That is the golden rule of Jacob. In our Parsha as well, so of course the brothers go down to Joseph, and he toys with them a little bit, accuses them of being spies, and then he says, when you come back, you got to bring Benjamin with you, and he takes Shimon as a hostage. And the brothers come back to Jacob, and Jacob says, no way, I'm not going to give you Benjamin. And Reuben tries to intervene, and Judah tries to intervene, and things get so bad, the, the famine gets so harsh, he finally relents. But then we read in chapter 43, verse 11, he tells them, this is what you have to do. Take from some of the delicacies of the land. And he lists a bunch of special delicacies like pistachio nuts and almonds, and honey, all these goodies that you can only get in Israel, in the land of Canaan. And take the money that was put back into your satchels and bring an extra set of money to pay for the new produce that you want to take back. And you know what? Take Benjamin. And then he adds a prayer. May God give you mercy in the eyes of that man, the eyes of Joseph. Of course, they don't realize he's Joseph quite yet. And you will go there successfully, get what you need, and come back. This is 43, 11 through 14. And there's an amazing Rashi on verse 14. Short Rashi. The first of several Rashis on that verse. Me'ata einchem chaserim klum ela tfila Hareni mispal aleichem. After Jacob says, okay, let's send a bribe. Let's send all these goodies and fill up your satchels with money. After all the effort, the only thing that's missing is prayer. And behold, I am going to pray for you. How does Jacob navigate this question? He does all the effort, but he marbleizes it with prayer. That's the winning formula of Jacob. You do the effort, you do the investment, and you mix in prayer and reliance on God. There is no indication that when Joseph asked the butler for help, he added the prayer, he did the efforts perhaps without the prayer, and maybe that is why he made a mistake, he relied on the butler too much, he didn't pray sufficiently. Okay, approach number five is, I think, where it gets a little bit more subtle. Listen to this. Most mitzvos are absolutes, meaning that everyone has to have tefillin, you got to wear tefillin, the tefillin has to be a specific kind of thing. 
It's got to have the, you know, the four compartments on the filling of the head and the one compartment that's filling the arm and you can't play around with it. It's got to be perfect, precise. You got to sit in the sukkah on sukkahs. You got to pray. You have to have a mezuzah on your doorpost. And this is something which is universal. Every Jew is obligated by these mitzvahs. The mitzvah, or at least the, the concept of reliance on God is personalized, is individualized. Meaning if I try to rely on God completely, if you're not quite there, if you're not up to that level of reliance, you're overshooting your level, and that's a problem. Reliance on God doesn't mean that, oh, I'm going to rely on God, but I'm so terrified. I'm so scared. What if it doesn't work? Reliance on God means that I actually rely on God as if this was the power and might of Uncle Sam. It's like a T-bill. You're relying on it completely. Reliance on God means that you can't possibly be scared. You're in a problem. You're in danger. You're, you, oh, let me just rely on God. If you're still terrified, if you're still shaking, that is not called reliance on God. Reliance on God means to rely on Him with the same degree of certainty that He's going to help you. The same degree as if when you turn the tap, you are certain it's going to yield water. You're as sure in it as the fact that you know tomorrow the sun will rise in the east. Now, the Talmud tells us that this idea is a very variable idea, meaning that depending upon how holy and righteous and upstanding a person is in their faith in God, that is the degree of reliance on God. The Talmud tells us, that in the olden days, listen to this, in the olden days, people, they really, really relied on God. They really, really had faith. And if they only had food for today, but had absolutely no food for tomorrow, and remember, we're living in a time of abundance. This is the only time in history, really, there's been enough food for every person on the planet. We live in the golden era the golden age of prosperity and abundance in the world. But imagine it's 2,000 years ago. There's one bad crop and there's starvation everywhere. You have food for today and you know for tomorrow and there's no soup kitchens. There's nothing. How are you going to feed your kids? Says the Talmud, it used to be that people would rely on God even in such a dire circumstance. And they wouldn't even complain. And they wouldn't be worried. They would know the Almighty will take care of me, says the Talmud. But that's just the olden days. The Talmud was written almost a dozen years ago. The Talmud says, in the past, it used to be that people actually had full faith in God. But today, no one has quite that level of reliance on God. Think about it like like a financial advisor. If you ever had a chat with a financial advisor trying to sell you whole life insurance, they would say, well, people today live longer and you have to make sure that your retirement covers you at least to the age of 100 because how else are you going to live once you retire? And if you have to plan now, so when you retire at 65, you have enough money, enough assets and enough Fixed income to cover you to at least a hundred. 
And the biggest disaster would be is what if you lived to 101? What's going to be? Or God forbid you make it to 108. What's going to be? How are you going to cover yourself? And now you're, I don't know, you're 25, you're 35, and you're worried about what's going to be when I hit 100 and I run out of my retirement. That's an example of someone who has zero reliance on God. It's the complete polar opposite of the people in the olden days who had no food for tomorrow and they were calm. They might take care of me. What am I worried about? Where exactly between those two we fall? You know, we have to find the sweet spot. Maybe you have to have enough assets or a plan for, for the next year and that's enough. What happens after that? Ugh, the Almighty will take care of it, of it for me. Something will happen. Something will come up. We'll be okay. For others, they say, you know, I only have a year. I only have a rainy day fund for a year. That's not enough. I need to have at least five years. And only then can I be calm and okay. And they have someone else who says, well, I have to at least a 10-year plan. At least a 10-year plan or else I, I can't sleep at night. I'm so worried. If you don't have reliance on God, it's very hard to be calm. It's very hard to be at ease, at peace, equilibrium. It's very hard. How do you get married? What's going to be? All these new expenses. What if I don't like this person anymore? How do I know? I'm such a small person. I can't possibly know everything. How can I have children? Children are so expensive. It's so expensive to raise a child through the age of 18, to pay for their college and to pay for their child care and all the sports camps and all that and food and clothing. How can you have any children? So a lot of people they do is they wait till they have enough money to have a child. The concept of reliance on God. He's not going to send you a child without sending you the means to pay for it. But that idea is foreign to most people. The Talmud tells us that when the Almighty sends you a child, he is sending you his child. It's not your child, it's his child. A pet peeve here. Whenever people ask me, how many children do you have? I always respond, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for my children. So they're not mine. I don't own them. They're owned by God. I am the steward. I'm in charge. I got to make bedtime and pay their tuition. It's my responsibility to raise them well, but they're not my children. They're the Almighty's children. If the Almighty is going to send you one of his children, he's not going to send you the means to pay for it. Says the Talmud, when the Almighty sends you a child, he also sends you a little satchel of gold to help pay for it. That is an idea of reliance on God. But again, depending upon how serious a person is about their relationship with the Almighty, that determines how much they actually rely on God. And Joseph is not held to our standards. In fact, if you look at the Midrash that criticizes Joseph, if you read it really carefully, it adds another wrinkle to this idea. It starts off by saying, praiseworthy is the man who relies on God. Says the Midrash, who is that talking about? Who is the paragon of reliance on God? Ze Yosef! This is Yosef! This is Joseph! Then it says, well, let's criticize him because he did not rely on God. You know, it seems to contradict itself. On one hand, 
Who is the person who we could praise? Asher Yadyever, praiseworthy is the man, Asher Sam Hashem Iftacho, who relies on God. And who's that? That's Joseph. Joseph is the man who relies on God. Nevertheless, he is criticized for his excessive reliance on men. This is the answer. This idea is not a universal idea. We're talking about Joseph here. For someone who typically was so reliant on God, who was always cognizant of God, who always understood that the Almighty is manipulating his world, orchestrating his world, coordinating his world to make sure that he's bringing him to where he needs to bring him to. For someone like Joseph, who is at such a high level, such a high standard, he shouldn't have asked for any help. Joseph is not like us. Let's not compare ourselves to Joseph. Joseph is one of the most important people in our history. One of the most important figures, of course, in the Torah. One of the great heroes of all time. That's Joseph. For someone like that, he should have had the highest level of reliance on God. Just like Thomas says, in the olden days, when people were holier and more righteous, they had more reliance on God. And that's the Talmud talking about, you know, the, the temple era, the first temple, the second temple era. Joseph is one of the, one of the tribes of Jacob and the father of two tribes, one of the most important people of our history, one of the absolute giants of faith in God for someone like that. He should not have relied on the butler at all. Again, that's not a standard that we can stand by or we're going to be held to. Because again, this is very individualized. For someone like Joseph, he should not have relied on the butler completely. And that's why he was punished. And finally, the final approach is as follows. This I saw in the comments of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He says that this case is a little bit different than every other case. Of course, under normal circumstances, you're in a problem, you're in a dilemma, you're in a predicament, you have a situation, you have to find a solution. What does that mean? It means, of course, reliance on God, but also means doing your share, doing your due diligence, investing the requisite effort as if God's not part of the picture. That's what you have to do. You have to do what it takes. But here, it's different. Why? Here, Joseph should have known that the Almighty is already taking care of him. After all, Joseph has these cellmates who show up after 10 years. Joseph's, again, been in jail for 10 years before they showed up. They show up and they have these dreams and he reconciles the dreams and he knows that this butler was brought to his cell in jail Worked for Pharaoh, about to go back to working for Pharaoh. Joseph knows that the Almighty is sending him some help. Once the Almighty already sends you help, then you don't rely on anyone else. Meaning, if it wasn't clear yet that the Almighty was already on the case, Joseph should have done whatever it takes should have written those letters, petitioning, starting a a change campaign. They have these like change.org, I think it is. You try to start a movement, get public awareness. 
That's all okay. But once you see the Almighty, he's already taking care of you. He's sending you someone. It's obvious what's happening. He's sending you someone to get to know you, to see who you are, and then he's going to go right back to Pharaoh. The Almighty's already on your case. Once the Almighty starts tending to your case, he's already on it. At that point, it will be inappropriate to reach out to any other source for help. Again, under normal circumstances, you have to do what's required. But here it's different. The Almighty is already solving the problem for you. Don't help him solve it. He's already got it. Now, I had an interesting speculation on this. Again, a few moving parts here. But listen to this. There's a concept featured a few places in Genesis that compares the 22 years that Jacob was separated from his father, Isaac, to the 22 years that Joseph was separated from his father, Jacob. Of course, Jacob, he left Isaac and he went to Haran and he married, well, he started off marrying Leah and then Rachel and the other two wives, had 12 children, spends 20 years there, all the chicanery and trickery of Laban, hightails, absconds out of there in the middle of the night, comes back to Canaan. He spent 20 years with Laban. And then along the journey, he stops at various places and stops in Sukkos and stops in Shechem. And it takes him two years from when he leaves Laban, from when he departs from Haran until he arrives back to Isaac. So if you do the math, Jacob is separated from his father for 22 years. Rashi, of course, tells us that it was actually 36 years, but 14 of those years he was studying Torah. When he studied Torah, for that, it's different. It's a separate account. So there's 14 years, studies Torah. That is not counted in the account. But 22 years he was separated from his father and not studying Torah. And therefore, he was punished for it. Because he was away from his father for 22 years, he's going to be punished the same way. Your son, Joseph, you're not going to see him also for 22 years. So Joseph is kidnapped, sold as a slave at the age of 17. He arrives in front of Pharaoh, is coronated at the age of 30. And there's seven years of plenty, plus two years of the famine. And then finally, he reunites with Jacob, and that's his parasha at the age of 39. So 17 to 39 is 22 years, exactly 22 years. Because Jacob was separate from his father for 22 years, that's why Joseph was separated from his father for 22 years. That is an idea featured many places. The Talmud talks about it. The Rashi talks about it in a bunch of places, etc. But listen to this. We're talking about Joseph having an extra two years tacked on to his sentence. So if you do the math, what would have happened had Joseph not relied on the butler? Well, then he would have gotten out two years earlier. And then he would have met his father two years earlier. It would have been only a 20-year period where he was separate from his father. Now, if you do the math, you study Jacob's story, he was only with Laban for 20 years. And then it took him two years to get back from Haran until he arrived together with, with Isaac. 
And the Talmud tells us that he was actually punished for those two years. Those two years was it was a, it was a sin. It was a mistake. Why? Because he was loitering around. He stopped off in Sukkos and spent some time there. He shouldn't have done that. He should have gone straight home. So I think it's interesting just to build up this idea. We have 20 years and 20 years, and then we have tacked on to the 20 years of Jacob being separated from Isaac and of Joseph being separated from Jacob, apparently as a result of the misdeeds or, or slight misdeeds of both Jacob and, and Joseph. So listen to this. Here's my theory. Why did Jacob loiter for two years after he left the home of Laban? Why didn't he just go straight back to Isaac? He leaves Laban. He right away encounters Esav. But of course, that, you know, that went well. Esav ultimately was ingratiated by Jacob and it it passed without a hitch. It went flawlessly. All of Esav's plans were tabled. Okay, so go straight home. Make it only a 20-year separation from your father. Why does he spend some time in Sukkot, 18 months there, and some other time in, in, in Shechem? Go straight home. So the commentators tell us that the reason why Jacob didn't go straight home and loitered around traveling from place to place for two years, the reason why is because he was still scared of Asaph. And he's wanted to test, test the waters. Maybe wait some more time before you get too close to Isaac and thus to Asav. And therefore he, he tarried a little bit. He dilly-dallied a little bit. Two more years in the journey on the trip in various different places, various different junctures before he got, got the confidence, so to speak, to go, even if it means coming in close proximity to Asav. Go to Isaac. So if you do the math here, you'll notice something fascinating. The last two years that Jacob loitered and didn't go straight to Isaac, in effect, according to the sixth answer that we've given to explain why Joseph is criticized for not relying on God too much, it turns out that the essence of what happened with Jacob for the last two years, and with Joseph for the last two years, is identical. Jacob, he was scared to go straight home. Why? Because of Esav. But wait a minute. You already met Esav. Remember? You met him. You sent him all that cattle and flocks and all that. And you went, you bowed down seven times and you met him. And then, you know, maybe he had some nefarious intentions, but ultimately he didn't do anything bad to you. And then he said, let's go together. He said, no, 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 I'll go, I'll go myself. You were scared of, of Asaph, but the Almighty already spared you from that. When someone was already spared from a problem by God, then it's inappropriate for someone to say, let me do my due diligence. Let me do my effort, my investment. Let me do it. Let me behave as if God is not present. That maybe is okay in other, in other circumstances, in other situations. But when God already solved your problem, don't solve the problem for him once he already solved it from you. That is the reason why Jacob loitered for two years. And according to what we're saying now, it's the exact same reason why Joseph, the same flaw, so to speak, that was represented 
by Jacob, that is in fact rooted in Joseph's extra two years of separation from his father. Both was a particular lack of reliance on God. When God already navigates you past an obstacle, from then on, you needn't rely on anyone else. But regardless, I think this, this subject is an interesting one to ponder. Of course, we have faith. We believe. We believe in God. But this is much more than that. This means to live your life as if that is actually true. As if you have a loving father who loves you more than any other human in the world, who is a billionaire. Maybe that's not so impressive anymore. Who's a trillionaire? Who's the best physician? Who has all the solutions to all your problems? And you know what? Maybe there is a Goldilocks zone. It's an individualized thing. Too little of your own effort, well, that's negligence. Too much of your own effort, that's a lack of faith and reliance on God. You have to find a happy spot in the middle. For every person, maybe that point is different. But regardless, I think it is an important thing to ponder. We must rely on the Almighty and not too much on ourselves. Let's not make the same mistake as Joseph. Of course, Joseph is on a different level. But conceptually, let's take this idea to heart. Okay, let's get to the sweet, exquisite insight. So in our parsha, it's the end, so to speak, of the period of dreams. We had, of course, last week's parsha, the dreams of Joseph and the dreams of the butler and the baker. And now we have the two dreams of Pharaoh. And these dreams are all prophetic. Now, Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 57b, there are five things that are a 60th. What does it mean, five things that are a 60th? 60th, one out of 60, is the volume of non-negligibility. I don't know if that's actually a word, but something, once you have one out of 60, that one is not negligible. If it's one out of 61, well, that's not enough. That might be quite, depending on, on what the situation is, but that might be, in fact, negligible. So whenever the Talmud wants to use the term of something being substantial and non-negligible, it says one sixtieth. So there are five things that are one sixtieth. Fire is a sixtieth of hell. And honey is a sixtieth of manna. And Shabbos is a sixtieth of Omaba. And sleep is a sixtieth of death. And a dream is a sixtieth of prophecy. So what does this mean? A dream is a sixtieth of prophecy. So I think simply put, it means that well, if you have a dream, it's not quite prophecy, but you see things, sometimes you see things about the future. And like we have in our parasha, sometimes they have some prophetic elements to them. Maybe the Almighty reveals in people's dreams a little bit, a 60th, a non-negligible portion of a prophetic truth in a dream. That's an idea in the Talmud again, Brachos, page 57b. I want to suggest another approach as the sweets exquisite insight. And again, I want to make this very clear. This is speculation. I'm not sure that this is correct. I want to speculate. Did you ever have a particularly well-constructed, riveting, crime caper as a dream? Did you ever have one of those dreams like a, like a neo-noir, gritty, action, thriller, well-crafted, but really strange once you think about it. Once you're you're sobered by waking up, you get aroused. Oh, that was strange. 
I know my, my daughter tells me that uh, she never remembers her dreams. So I don't know if everyone remembers their dreams. But if you are someone that sometimes has these, you know, these crazy stories in your dream, maybe we can make the following suggestion. Imagine the following dream. It's, it's Friday, Friday afternoon, and uh, you're taking a flight. Now, of course, that's a bad idea because what happens if the flight's delayed? What do you do about Shabbos? But again, it's a dream. So you get to the airport and you get to the airport, you realize, oh no, I'm, I'm still in pajamas. Why am I wearing pajamas? And you're all, all embarrassed and, uh, and you miss your flight. And now it's almost Shabbos. You have to get home before Shabbos. So what do you do? You don't have a car. You, you just go and borrow someone's sports car. Again, this is a dream. And the way home, oh no, I, I just totaled the car. What do, what do I do? So, you know what? Maybe I'll walk or maybe I'll find a bus. And you get into the bus and, uh, you're taking the bus, but suddenly the bus turns into cardboard. What do we do? Let's carry the bus quickly. Take the cardboard bus. And suddenly you, you arrive at a place and there's like these narrow alleys and you're trying to get the, the bus, which is now made out of cardboard and to weave it through the, the narrow alleys. And you're like, Oh, it's too difficult. Let's do, let's go, let's go inspect. Let's go explore some of these houses in these alleys. And you start inspecting it and you go from, from apartment to apartment and you arrive at the apartment at the top. Oh, oh no, there's someone there. Oh, they're, they're calling the cops on us. What do we do? We're innocent. Are there any other apartments here that maybe we could escape to? So you ask the homeowners, are there any apartments here? Uh, no, no, we're the old, we're the penthouse suite. There's, there's no one else here. Oh, are you sure? Look at this. And you push behind the false, the false door. In the, in the hall, in the stairwell, oh, there's an, a massive apartment. It's, it's actually a jail. Oh, no, there's hostages there, and their mouths are covered. Oh, no, it's dangerous. They're coming out. They notice me. Oh, look at that. I have a gun. Let's start shooting everyone. Uh, I'll, get, I'll get rid of these menaces. I start shooting. Oh, no, it's not shooting bullets. It's just shooting uh, ice. It's just shooting ice. No, they're shooting at me. What do I do? I got to call the cops. So you quickly grab out your phone. You try dialing 911, but it just keeps on hitting the wrong numbers. Oh, it's terrifying. They're all shooting at me. Oh, oh it's not, not so bad. It's not so bad. They're also shooting at me. It's ice. It's only ice. Not so bad. I can survive this. Maybe the cops will come. Maybe the SWAT team will come. And then you're like, oh, no, I got a problem because there's this one guy who has a real gun. Oh, no, he has the real gun. He's he's pointing the real gun at me. Ah! And you wake up in a sweat. How was that? How was that for a dream? Was that a well-constructed dream? So you wake up, you're in a sweat, your heart's pounding. You're like, oh, well, I'm, I'm home. I'm okay. I'm in one piece. Everyone's safe. You go check your whole family. Everyone's home. Everyone's sleeping in their bed. Whew, that was just a dream. Wow. Is that a good job of, of describing some of the styles of your dream? I don't know. Maybe you have different kinds of dreams than me. But I, I've been reliably told people have some crazy dreams like that. What happens now? You wake up. Your heart's pounding. You try to construct the story back in your mind. And it makes no sense. And you're like, wait, wait a minute. What? I borrowed someone's sports car and then the, the bus turned into cardboard and then they were shooting ice and there was hostages. Once you're up, once you're awake, 
you realize it was it was totally implausible. Everything was off. It was so real to you. Seconds ago, your heart's still pounding. Even now that you're up, your heart's still pounding. But at the time, you were sure it was real. And you ask yourself the question, how did I think it was real? Didn't I notice that everything was off? It's so obvious to me now that it was just an illusion. But mere seconds ago, I was sure it's real. Again, my heart's still pounding. But it was all fake. It was all an illusion. Our life, we're told, in the liturgy we say it on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, it's a, an idea that's found in many places. Our life is like a dream. Your soul, your soul is real. Your soul is actually you. Your soul is going to be around even after this nightmare is over. Even after this sweet, fleeting dream is over. Regardless if it's a good dream, it's a bad dream, it's a terrifying dream. Regardless, the soul endures. And the soul is put in this illusory world and everything seems so real. And we don't think about, hey, hey, that doesn't make any sense. Perhaps we can suggest maybe another way to explain this Talmud. Dreams are a 60th of prophecy. Why? Because when you have such a dream and you wake up, you get an intimate picture of the two competing realities, the real reality and the illusory reality. And that is the experience of prophecy. That's the, like a little window, a little insight into the fact that our life today, to a certain extent, to our soul, this is just a dream. Of course, we can still make decisions and our decisions here matter. So it's not quite like a dream, but the idea of us doing things that are incomprehensible, inexplicable to the soul. There are things that we do here that don't make any sense to the soul. It's harmful. It's crazy. Why would you do that? Why would you think you can even do that? That is the experience of the soul. And it's identical to the experience of waking up and realizing and recognizing that you were just duped into believing total nonsense. That feeling of, of waking up, like, oh, oh, wow, we got rid of that story. That was crazy. Perhaps that is exactly what the soul feels when it is liberated from the bodily incarceration of this world. Is this true? Is this something to think about when you wake up? I hope you don't have any nightmares. But if you wake up from a nightmare, is this something to think about? Is the wake up from the insane dream? A certain measure of prophecy, I don't know. But again, this is the exquisite insight. I never called it, even when we were entertaining a different name, I never called it the authoritative insight. I never called it the incontrovertibly definitive insight. It's the exquisite insight. It's an idea. It's food for thought. More food for thought. We have food for thought about reliance on God. We have food for thought about the fact that perhaps our life here to our soul is as incomprehensible and implausible and just off and strange to our soul as a dream is to us once we wake up, even though when we're in it, we're sure it's real. I thank you for listening. Have an amazing rest of your day. 
Have a wonderful and splendid rest of your Hanukkah and a terrific and sensational and peaceful and wonderful in every way. Shabbos, I'm coming and thank you for listening from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Podcast. My address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.